in my um, my very first uh, company, which was an engineering design company, um, I had an advisor who uh, was fond of using that term, go where they ain't. So he his philosophy was go into industries and go into niche areas where there isn't a lot of competition. It gives you an opportunity to try stuff and fail without major implications. That's Doug Spade, founder and CEO of Cathedral Leasing. And he's also the Code 2040 Entrepreneur Residence at American Underground in Riley, Durham. This season of Techpreneurs shares insights like this. By doing this, by investing in early stage minority-led companies, they can unearth opportunities that other people overlook. So it's all about the underutilized assets and being able to unearth something that the rest of the industry has completely glossed over. We're happy to bring you these stories with the support of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, one of the Google for Entrepreneurs tech hubs. I could not be more excited to have you right here along with me. I hope you subscribe. Visit us at techpreneurs.co or just search techpreneurs anywhere you download podcasts. Doug starts us off here with talking about how he found himself at American Underground and what brought him to Raleigh Durham. Enjoy. So um, I'm just getting involved with um, American Underground, relocated uh, my company to Durham. Uh, mostly to take advantage of the tech talent that's available there, as well as the capital availability. So Durham seems to be the uh, the center of the universe for North Carolina in terms of venture funding. Uh, so it's a great place to to locate, and many of the firms are actually located in the incubator, which is a little bit a little bit uh, unique in that regard. I would love to hear a little about your startup mm-hmm. and. Before we really dig into that, though, I want to hear about your background, because you've had some really interesting experiences. I mean, you've worked <laughs> at NASA, you've been an entrepreneur residence at Gig Tank, which was a 2014 Venture Accelerator mm-hmm. in Chattanooga, and you've had numerous positions at Oak Ridge Laboratory, so it's sure. a lot of different things you've done. So yeah. let's start off, um, I guess, with NASA. Okay. All right. Um, well, NASA was a really neat uh, experience for me. I mean, actually, it was. I'm a... I'm a gadget geek, right? So I absolutely love technologies that are tactile, uh, mechanical, electrical devices. So I actually had the opportunity to work with them for a number of years to take new inventions, develop it by their scientists and engineers, and then transition them to the uh, the marketplace. So they had over 12,000 patents and technologies that they were trying to, uh, to get out. They thought they would be useful in industry. And so they actually gave them to me as their tech transfer specialist uh, to find companies that would take those technologies and then transition them, package them, and then launch them in the marketplace. So that was about 12,000 inventions and patents. Mm -hmm. And what year was that when you were there? Yeah, so I started in late 2001, 2002, and that project went all the way through about 2006, 2007. Oh, wow. I wonder how many more they have. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would imagine with all of the new, uh, all the new projects and Mars landing and everything. Yeah. Else, that might add a couple of patents. I'm sure it did. <laughs> so after that, then one of your big things, you were entrepreneur residence at gig tank, yep. 2014 venture accelerator. Sure. So that's in Chattanooga. So what, what was that role? What did that include? Yeah, so interesting thing about that. So that grew out of my uh, work at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Okay, so uh, Oak Ridge came in between those two. Correct. Got it. Let's, then in that case, let's talk about what you did at Oak Ridge. Okay, so at Oak Ridge, I did the exact same thing that I did at NASA. So taking new inventions, mostly in energy and a number of communications technologies, big data, and actually transitioning them to the marketplace, either through startup companies and helping those scientists and engineers start new startup companies or licensing to a larger entity. 
so I did that work for uh, ORNL for close to six years. And in that process, um, I worked very closely with the 3D printing team. So they have a world-renowned 3D printing research team there at Oak Ridge, one of the best in the world. And I was actually their industrial counterpart on that team. Uh, so I actually became certified in 3D printing, little known fact. What? Uh, yeah. Who so. certifies you? <laughs> you just, is that just like no, it's, you uh, 3D print your own badge? Yeah. <laughs> So the uh, Society of Manufacturing Engineers okay, actually cool. offers a, a certification program. I've been a member of that organization for a number of years. And wow. uh, yeah, so I'm actually a certified uh, industrial 3D printer. Great. So I wonder, before we talk about what you did then after, after that, mm-hmm. so at this point, NASA and Oak Ridge National mm-hmm. Laboratory, I said that Correct. right? Mm-hmm. So what's it like working with scientists wow. to help them think about creating a product, a scalable product for a marketplace? (laughs) Very good question. It's both exhilarating and frustrating at the same time. Exhilarating because I had the opportunity between those two organizations to work with really the best scientists in the world. I mean, guys that uh, really came from a number of places, Vienna, Austria, Germany, they came from all over the world to work in their specific area of, of technological expertise. It was frustrating because they're just not wired to think of commercialization. They're just not wired to think of startup companies. Their job is to get the funding to continue their research. And the the technology, the innovation is really just a byproduct. So they don't look at that as something that's being valuable. Uh, So really, it took us trying to retrain them in the way that they think around what they created and how it could be valuable in the marketplace. That's That's the tough part. What do you think that single message is to a scientist about helping them rethink how what they've created, this invention, how it can become a product that you sell? Yeah, it's it's difficult, and actually, it varies per engineer, per scientist, yeah, per scientist or engineer, uh, because engineer. they're yeah, because they're trained to think in terms of the value that they create is in the publications, right? So they write papers on all of their inventions and their research, and they get circulated in all of the industry journals and that sort of thing. And, of course, they get research funding from the government mostly to uh, do the type of work that they do. Those are really the two major metrics for them. So to add a third is kind of uh, a bit of a burden. So you really have to play and pull on their heartstrings in terms of what it could mean to humankind, right? What it could mean to commerce and the economy in the United States and, uh, and around the world uh, to try and retrain them in terms of how they think. Is there a, a product or two that really stands out that you can speak to maybe from NASA or Oak Ridge National Laboratory? Yeah, yeah. So there are two two technologies that come to mind um, immediately. One was a NASA technology around cryogenics, which is essentially how to efficiently and effectively freeze stuff and preserve it for long periods of time. And I had a technology out of, I guess that was Kennedy in Florida around cryogenics. And there was a a company that was using cryogenics to actually develop probiotics. Um, so these supplements that you take in order to to help your digestive system, they contain bacteria during the manufacturing process. Some of those bacteria die away. So using this freeze-drying, essentially, technology in cryogenics, they were able to, to keep more live cultures in the probiotics. It was a connection that I never would have made, but I happen to know a person, a CEO of a probiotic company doing nutraceuticals who made the connection for me, and we actually did a great deal. 
then he licensed the technology and his company actually went from number seven in the industry to number three. Wow. Yeah. That's really neat. Yeah, I'm, it is. It's, it's, I know the list probably goes on. <laughs> well, there's so much, uh, so much technology, so many great deals that I worked in on. Um, one of them was a, a holographic technology out of Oak Ridge National Laboratory that's now making its way into point-of-sale displays. Uh, so that technology was licensed to a company. They use a number of different camera angles and, and unique configurations to create a, a life-like hologram, three-dimensional hologram. And you're starting to see those in point-of-sale displays when you walk into a uh, office and there's a kiosk there. So it's really neat to see those types of products show up in the marketplace more often. Wow. All right. So now in your path, now you find yourself your entrepreneur residence. This is before... This is a different type of entrepreneur residence. Sure. 2014 entrepreneur residence at Gig Tank. So, yeah. what were you doing there with the the Venture Accelerator? Good question. So we were. It was all about 3D printing in 2014. So Gig Tank created actually the first uh, 3D printing accelerator in the country in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they invited me down as the entrepreneur in residence um, for really two reasons. One, because they knew of my background in 3D printing. And certifications You're certified and so forth. in 3D printing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or as some people just say, I'm just certified. So. Okay. Or <laughs> certifiable, sure. rather. Um, so, yeah. Um, so they brought me down for my expertise in 3D printing and also because of the work that I've been doing in helping companies spin out of the laboratories and the federal agencies. So I work directly with uh, nine different companies to help them refine their uh, 3D printing manufacturing techniques. They had a number of different products from 3D printing shoes to 3D printing uh, medical models for preparation for surgery and then a whole slew of different industry opportunities. So they brought me down to help those companies refine their manufacturing techniques and perfect their 3D printing. Great, so this, when you were there, this is when, which has now become a new, I guess new branding or new company, your company now, Mm -hmm. that you're CEO and founder of Cathedral Leasing Group. So that was when you were also incubating that out of there. That's exactly right. Great. So now, fast forwarding to where you're at today, <laughs> yeah. it's really great. It's, I love the story of all this so far. So now you are entrepreneur residents at American Underground. That's through the 2040 mm-hmm. Diversity Initiative at Google for Entrepreneurs. Correct. That's what this whole season's about. So what's going through your mind? Yeah. So um, it's it's an exciting time. So Durham, uh, North Carolina, is home is my hometown. Grew up there. I am actually part of a entrepreneurial legacy in Durham, North Carolina. My grandfather actually started all of this um, in 1938, created his first company in 1938 at a very difficult time for uh, African-American to get up and running. And since he and my father have created some eight different companies, um, mostly small businesses, but everything from taxi companies to uh, heating oil delivery and the like. So I carry on that that sort of legacy. That's that's how I grew up uh, as a fa- in um, family businesses and operating all sorts of uh, different ventures. So in looking at uh, returning to Durham for uh, this EIR program, I want to be able to uh, to do a number of things. One, help to increase the uh, the number of uh, minority and women entrepreneurs in the city, and help to stimulate that activity so that Durham can go back to this Black Wall Street sort of scenario that it enjoyed in the earlier part of the century, but also help change the conversation around venture capital and how they view investing in minority companies as well. What do you think some of those changes as it relates to capital and venture funding, what do you anticipate that conversation to be like? 
Do you have any assumptions about that now? I do. I do. And and luckily, there are a lot of funds that have uh, been really vocal about their commitments to um, funding minority entrepreneurs. Kapoor Capital, for one, uh, Mitch and Frida Kapoor have been at this for a number of years and, and heavily promote their their uh, strategy of investing in, in minority startups. 500 startups as well. Dave McClure has been a very vocal advocate of doing this. And I think his uh, philosophy around investment strategy is probably the best one that I've heard. Dave says that by doing this, by investing in early stage minority-led companies, they can unearth opportunities that other people overlook. So it's all about the underutilized assets and being able to unearth something that the rest of the industry has completely glossed over. As we all know, you know, VCs invest in their networks, they invest in their friends and folks that they've uh, funded before, uh, but by unearthing new startups in new industries that may have a unique advantage because of their compositional makeup, uh, they actually think that they can increase returns for their LPs. So uh, I think that's the most compelling uh, strategy yet, and I, I'm all for it. From the VC perspective, so... Uh, he or she is, is is sitting there right now, and they're thinking, "Well, I want to invest, but how do I how do I start? Maybe trying to because yeah, like you just said, they're gonna, they know their network naturally, just like anyone else does. They know their friends, they they know that. But how do you how do you get them out of their bubble? Good question. Uh, by showing them variety, right? So it's a um, it's a it's a matter of identifying a channel uh, that they can reach minority companies that might not be utilized now. So a communication, creating this new communication channel, in some cases incorporating this into their overall strategy. In addition to that, it's being able to show them the diversity that's available in minority-led companies as well. Uh, for instance, we're in fintech as, a, as an equipment leasing company operating a B2B marketplace. So we are in a unique space that where there aren't very many minorities uh, operating at all. So it's a little give and take between the two, being able to create those new channels so that they can access new, new pipelines and also being able to illustrate that there's a full diversity, a, a very broad plate that they can choose from. Right. And it's, it doesn't happen overnight. It nope. takes steps, sure. right? Oh, I like yeah. it. Very good. Well, one thing I want to ask you a little bit about. So sure. this is, I think, talking a little about taking products to market or, or even trying to growth, you know, growth hacking. I know it's kind of a buzzword, but mm-hmm. from your experiences with the products that scientists have been creating from your previous time working with NASA and Oak Ridge National Laboratory, what are your thoughts about early product acceleration to take the idea or create or take a product that might be created for something totally different and yeah. innovating? Yeah, so uh, so it's interesting because um, these are really two different profiles. And, and whenever I start a new company or go into a new area, I have this terrible habit of doing something completely different than what I did before. Um, so having a mechanical electrical background really lends itself to, to more device oriented plays. Um, and that's what you're, that's what you're, uh, when you went to school, Mm -hmm. um, because that ties directly into what you studied, right? Exactly. What was that? Yeah. So I, um, I had an undergraduate degree in industrial technology from, um, a historically black college engineering school, North Carolina, A&T state university. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks. And sorry to interrupt you there. Sure. Sure. But for 
for these devices, I think it's 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 a tactile experience that you're trying to to get customers to to really get to. Um, once they can touch it, feel it, see it operating, it's a different opportunity. So I think in the growth hacking strategy for device oriented plays, it's all about getting people to see and understand uh, what the device is doing so that it's not just a black box. They can actually feel it, touch it, operate it, and that sort of thing. So as many demos as you can possibly do, um, and, uh, and, and also being able to promote that is, is absolutely important. Um, on this side, though, since we're really in B2B, you know, SaaS-oriented uh, a right. play, uh, this is more about uh, being able to illustrate how our product brings value to our target markets. And in our case, uh, we're really looking at how to facilitate the equipment leasing process, how to make uh, equipment more affordable for small to medium-sized companies by making the, the process to apply for lease financing easier, uh, less complicated, and uh, actually happens within 24 hours. So uh, companies have choice, and that's all about, uh, that's, that's what our platform seeks to do, is give people choice. What are you looking for? What are you seeking right now? Partnership? Mentorship, investment, all of the above. All of them, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, D. All of the you want above. All of them. Okay, right. Of right. So uh, partnerships are really important to us. What's a great um, partnership for? This is a really unique kind of business. It is, um, and, and it's a to some degree, it's a spin on the marketplace lending model uh, that Lending Tree or Lending Club or Prosper or On Deck have um, have popularized. It's simply in an industry um, that is kind of a dirty back office function that nobody pays attention to like nobody cares about the equipment leasing group they're in a basement of a bank somewhere um, and we actually take that function automate it um, and make it a lot more seamless um, and so the partnerships that we seek are banks and leasing firms um, usually regional banks and smaller uh, that want to acquire more customers, but they just don't have any business development capacity. They don't have any salespeople on hand to go out and reach companies. So we actually bring them deals. And on the other side of the equation, um, we work with small and medium-sized businesses and equipment salespeople in particular who actually lose deals because they can't find financing for their customers quickly enough. Excellent. Well, how can someone connect with you in the meantime and also follow along American Underground? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, you could always reach us uh, through the site, uh, www.cathedralleasing.com, or um, email me directly, Doug Spade at cathedralleasing.com. Twitter is great, at Cathedral Lease, um, and also through American Underground as well. So, um, Certainly. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. But, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate your time sharing sure. what, you're, what you're building and what your experiences have been so far, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Excellent. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Thanks for listening. This season of Techpreneurs is powered by the Nashville Entrepreneur Center in support of the Google for Entrepreneurs Tech Hub Network. Find out more about the EC and their accelerator opportunities like Project Music and Project Healthcare at ec.co. Techpreneurs is a production of Relationary Marketing. It's produced by Chuck Bryant and myself, Clark Buckner. Editing support by John March and music was created by Andrew Malone. To learn more about Code 2040 and how to apply to be an entrepreneur in residence, go to code2040.org slash entrepreneurs. Thanks, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Techpreneurs.